Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the Gospel of John with Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers discussing the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6. This event, which is found in all four Gospels, is more public than Jesus' previous signs. In here, they'll discuss the sign itself and how it ties to the Lord's Supper. They'll show how this is a new Passover and how Jesus is surpassing the Old Covenant system with this sign. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers discussing the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers and Alastair Roberts. Today, we're continuing our discussions of the Gospel of John. We started uh, several weeks ago with a series working through the incidents in the first half of John's Gospel that are labeled as the Book of Signs. Um, a couple of the events are explicitly labeled as signs. The wedding at Cana, where Jesus turns the water into wine, is labeled as the first sign that he performed. The healing of the royal official son is described as the second sign. But many commentators have noticed that there's a sequence of incidents that are similar to that, seven of them by most counts, that culminate in the resurrection of Lazarus. And so we've been going through those, that book of signs uh, through the last several weeks. This week we're talking about the first part of John 6. John 6 includes a couple of different incidents that we'll be looking at, uh, and they're connected Uh, The first incident is Jesus uh, feeding the 5,000 in the wilderness. uh, um, Commentators notice the the, uh, geographic disruption that occurs at the beginning of chapter 6. At the end of chapter 5, he appears to be still in Jerusalem. He's still responding to the Jews' criticism of his healing of the paralytic. Uh, And then suddenly after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is a long way from Jerusalem. So he's on the on the other side of the country, you have this um, geographic break and Jesus provides food for hungry people in the wilderness. And then the second incident in this chapter has to do with the crossing of the water. The disciples get into a boat and they begin crossing and Jesus doesn't go with them, but then he appears during the night crossing over, walking on the water. Those two scenes work together. Not only are they in the same chapter in John's gospel, but they work together typologically because we have a, a kind of Passover event in the first half of the chapter, we have a crossing of the water in the second half of the chapter. And then the rest of the chapter, Jesus is discussing the man in the wilderness in order to explain what he's provided, what who he is and what he's provided for his disciples. So it hangs together around an, an Exodus typology that uh, we've noticed this before in previous episodes that Jesus is being presented as the new Moses. Jesus is the one who brings in a new and better covenant. He's surpassing the old covenant, which is powerless to bring the eternal life that Jesus offers. Uh, and that that same general theme is being worked out here with this particular Passover Exodus motif. Within John's Gospel, um, we have the Sea of Galilee referred to as the Sea of Tiberias. Um, in Luke, it's referred to the lake, but in the other Gospels, it's referred to the sea. And I think, again, we can see the fact that it's given a significance that its geographic size would not seem to merit but the symbolic 
importance of this particular sea and the crossing of it is very important. It's cross, like crossing the Sea of Reeds, followed by this mul- multitude led up to the mountain. And it is the pattern that we see of the Exodus. Um, likewise, I think there is something anticipating what Jesus says later on concerning himself as the shepherd of the sheep, which is, of course, a mosaic role. Um, Jesus is the one who leads out the people. He's the one who gives them good pasture. The fact that there is much grass at the mountain would seem to be connected with that. Also, there's a test. Uh, Jesus basically tests his disciples here with food. So there's a food test to all these people. What are we going to do? Jesus says, uh, where are we going to buy bread? And then there's a series of responses from the disciples, uh, none of which are <laughs> actually all that good. And, and, and I think, Alistair, you said something uh, weeks ago about this. When Jesus tests the disciples about how they're going to feed, how they're going to feed all these people, the disciples uh, start calculating things. They start trying to figure out the means, uh, how it's going to happen. Um, and uh, we, we don't have enough money, uh, so there's economics involved and uh, all that. And finally, Andrew says, well, there's a boy here with five loaves and two fish. And that seems like the best answer. And, and then all of a sudden, Jesus does this miracle, again, without really telling us how it's done, without really doing anything. He just uh, says, distribute the food, and it happens. But there seems to be, in John's Gospel, and, and Alistair, this is what you mentioned, this this notion that whenever uh, Jesus says that he's going to do something or wants to do something, everybody starts trying to figure out how it can be done. Uh, even the woman at the well uh, was like, well, you know, uh, you don't even have uh, anything to, to go and get water from the well. How, how are you going to uh, give me this living water? Um, that seems to be a theme in John's miracle stories is that um, nobody really knows how this happens, but Jesus' word can accomplish it. Yeah, it's like there's a, there's a different kind of causality at work. You can't get water from oil without a pail. You can't, you can't get bread without money. So, but Jesus, um, Jesus is supplying these things with a, a kind of a different, again, a different order of causality. He's, he's causing things to happen in ways that don't, uh, aren't according to the natural, what we think of as the natural way of things operate. It's also interesting that the people who are mentioned here are Philip, Andrew, and in, Andrew as Peter's brother. And in Luke's gospel, I think it's described as taking place in Bethsaida, which is their hometown. So if anyone was going to know the local area, what was possible to buy there, etc., it would have been them. They were the people with the local expertise and knowledge, but yet Jesus shows the limitations of that, um, that he is able by his word to provide things that even those who know everything that can be bought within the area, who know what would be possible, that they realize the impossibility. I think the other thing I'd note in connection with the story of the wilderness is that in chapter 18, there is the division of the people um, among the various elders um, to under Moses, according to the advice of Jethro. And it seems as if Jesus mm-hmm. is doing something similar here. There's a delegation of the responsibility to his disciples and a division of the people under them. Mm-hmm. 
I, I can't help thinking that a passage like this would be enormously important and encouraging for early church uh, who uh, that ha- they had nothing. They had nothing, no buildings, no endowments, no, no cultural power. Uh, and yet, against all odds, Jesus multiplied the early church, the post-apostolic church, and gave her to the world as food and 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 life, and 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 oftentimes we are always evaluating and sizing up things and wondering whether we have the power or the potential with our spreadsheets and our mathematics, and yet here Jesus simply says, "Do this," uh, and it's a Eucharistic setting, obviously, uh, that if you do this, if you take bread and you give thanks and you distribute it, life and power will come to the world. Mm -hmm. We should probably note in passing that this is one of the few accounts that is found in every single one of the Gospels. Um, Each one of the Gospels records the feeding of the 5,000 with slightly different details highlighted, but um, Mm -hmm. it's obviously an event that every single one of the Gospel writers thought this really needs to be included within their account. And it fits with, you mentioned the shepherd, the shepherd uh, references here, the grass, uh, Psalm 23 allusion. And um, biblically, a shepherd is a king. And that's what, that's how the people respond to Jesus. Verse 15, uh, they intend to make him king by force. So that's clear in, in the synoptics where the feeding, the feeding of the 5,000, I know in Mark, I don't remember if it's juxtaposed this way in, in Matthew and Luke, but it's in Mark is juxtaposed to the feast of Herod, where Herod ends up calling for the beheading of John the Baptist. So you have this contrast of the cannibal king and Jesus, the king who's feeding his people. But verse 14 has another, there's another connection. The people not only react by wanting to make him king, but they say, this is of a truth, the prophet who's been, who's coming to the world. I think that goes back to Deuteronomy 18 and the promise of a prophet like Moses but uh, I suspect it's also um, Elisha in the background who's also responsible for multiplying loaves. Am, am I remembering rightly that they're barley loaves in the case of Elisha? Uh, they're barley loaves here. This incident is emphasized in the Gospels because it's a, it's a window into Jesus' identity as king, but also as prophet. It is 20 barley loaves um, in Second Kings chapter 4, 42 yeah. Yeah. 44. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Isn't it also the case that every gospel account of Jesus uh, feeding, whether four or 5,000, all call attention to the leftovers, Um, gather up the leftovers so that nothing will be lost. And there's something significant also to the numbers, five loaves and then 12 leftovers. And it it seems to me, and this may be, more explicit in Mark um, that Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then the disciples collect up the leftovers and there's going to be plenty left over for them to continue the feeding. It's like the work is being passed on mm-hmm. to them. Yeah. The numbers are um, perplexing um, or at least they invite our attention. Jesus in the other Gospels, has a conversation with the disciples afterwards saying, did you not realize mm-hmm. the significance of the number of the lo- loaves, etc., or the number of the baskets that you gathered up after the feeding of the 5,000 and after the feeding of the 4,000? And the number of fish and the number of 
pieces of bread also seem to be given some significance. Jesus later on has a meal with fish and bread with his disciples after his resurrection in chapter 21. Um, Why are there five loaves? Should we connect that with 1 Samuel 21 with David feeding his men in the wilderness with five loaves of the showbread? Um, Other questions that we might have is why fish? Fish may not be the first thing that we'd think um, would be part, would maybe think bread and wine, but there's fish and bread, and one's land food, one's seafood, um, fish being associated with the Gentiles. Jesus eats fish later on, maybe after his resurrection. What are we to make of those sorts of details? Yeah, well, the, on the numbers, then uh, Austin Ferrer. Farah has a very detailed discussion of the numbers uh, of the loaves and leftovers. And I can never keep the details in my head <laughs> of how he works it all out. But he's, he's, pl- he's plugging it into that, to, into a Jew-Gentile contrast. And there's uh, loaves and leftovers for both Israel and for the world. And I think that, yeah, the, the combination of bread and fish would have the same kind of, would communicate the same kind of thing, that this is a meal that includes both Israel and the nations, that um, Jesus has come as the savior of the world. He's the, he's the king of Israel, but also of Gentiles. I was going to mention too, the, I mentioned the last episode uh, on John that uh, you have this uh, progression from more or less private signs early on in John's gospel into these more public events. The first one in chapter five with the healing of the paralytic, we have that again here. Uh, I think this is the first time we've had a multitude mentioned a large multitude following Jesus. Uh, and he performs this miracle of feeding the 5,000 in the presence of these 5,000 people. So this is no longer being done at a private wedding. His, this sign is being done in public. It's going to be a, a celebrated incident for the, for people who were there. You know, you can imagine that it'd be the talk of the area. And then just like the healing, the paralytic, this moves into a combat and uh, a, a trial over Jesus' actions uh, and over his words with uh, opponents. And so we, we have the same kind of movement that we had in chapter 5, this a miracle, a sign, and then that provokes reaction, and that leads to the Jews attempting to put Jesus on trial for, for what he said and what he's done. The action that Jesus performs here is reminiscent of the Last Supper. Um, he takes the bread he um, gives thanks and he breaks it, distributes it to um, the various people who are sitting down. We don't have an account of the actual institution of the supper within John's gospel. And yet in this chapter, there seem to be a number of images that are associated with the meaning of the um, Eucharist. We have the feeding of the 5,000. We have the manna story or the account of the manna later on discussed. We have um, food that you will eat and live forever, like the tree of life. We have the bread that has come down from heaven associated with the sacrifices. And in all of these cases, it would seem that we should be reading this as a degree of commentary upon the meaning of our celebration of the supper, not just upon um, some distinct miracle that Jesus performed during his ministry. There's something about this that points forward to the continuing practice of the church. The 12 baskets that are gathered up represent a new Israel, but they also represent the ministry of the apostles. 
um, as the leaders of this new Israel, that they're given some responsibility and Christ will be found sufficient in that ministry. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And yet, uh, so many commentators, uh, preachers in our circles uh, resist uh, drawing any kind of connection between uh, this event and then the bread of life discourse with uh, the Lord's Supper with the Eucharist. I just don't know how in the world uh, you can make sense of this. Why would John ever write something like this when all the words he uses are the same words used in uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians 11 to describe uh, not just the Last Supper, but the Lord's Supper in the church? Um, I, I think sometimes our our polemics against Rome and against uh, transubstantiation uh, cause us to be fearful of drawing these obvious connections in this chapter. Yeah, and the connections are pretty obvious when you when you get later on in the in the uh, debate verses fifty two and following. Actually, it begins in fifty one where Jesus says he gives his flesh for the life of the world, and he begins talking about eating flesh and drinking his blood. And that uh, being a means of eternal life. So it's hard to imagine uh, how John could be more explicit about a connection with the, with the supper. I mean, you think about the, in what, whatever dating we give to John's gospel, John is writing into a setting where there are churches already practicing the supper, mm-hmm. even if it's a fairly, I think it's a pre-70 date. Uh, even so, you've had several decades of churches practicing the supper with uh, Jesus' words of institution, uh, at least known, uh, mm-hmm. and then John writes something without without ever referring to the Last Supper. He writes something about eating flesh and drinking blood. The the first readers, the first hearers of this, I think, are going to make the obvious connection with uh, with the Lord's Supper. Mm. The same is true with John chapter three and baptism. Yeah, right. How, how in the world John could ever pen this? And, and think that people wouldn't have connected uh, the water uh, that Jesus talks about uh, being, you know, uh, born again through water. Wow. Uh, that's just crazy to think that he would ever pen something like that when the church has been practicing, you know, water baptism uh, for at least decades. Yeah, right. Any thoughts on the significance of the young boy in this story? Because if I recall, I don't think any of the other Gospels mention the boy. They just say that there were only found five loaves and two fish. But here you have a particular boy that's mentioned. Well, actually, I think the boy brought enough food for 5,000 people. The actual miracle here is a miracle of sharing. (laughs) Uh, He was going to hoard that semi-truck full of food uh, and keep it for himself, but then is convicted about it and he should. The word for lad here is a, it's not just the, the word for boy, but it's a diminutive of the word for boy. The fish are also called little fish. It's a diminutive form in the Greek. So there's, there's an emphasis uh, on the, the weakness and the, the smallness of the source. We may, we may have some kind of link with the, with the previous chapter where you have the, the paralytic who is among the weak and the sick. And then he becomes this witness to the power of Jesus to heal. And here you have another, it's the weak things of the world that confound the wise. It's the small things that confound the great. There's an emphasis on the, as Jesus says elsewhere, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, 
then uh, you can tell this mountain to move and be cast into the sea. And you have that emphasis on littleness being the source of a great miracle. Again, the fact that it's 5,000 men who are numbered. If you were going to feed people, you'd expect to number women and children too. But the 5,000 men, and in the other Gospels, divided into 50s and 10s, etc., it suggests some sort of military um, theme taking place, which I think would fit with the description of the exodus and entrance into the Promised Land, which both involve um, going out in ranks of 50s or 5s. Um, one other detail, the response of the people to the sign is to identify him with the prophet like Moses, um, that he is the one who is seen to fulfill that promise of the prophet that would come, that would come into the world. Right. right. I think the, the 5,000 men reference... Uh, and the and the setting too. The setting is uh, it's a Passover. It's during the time of Passover. Jesus is not in Jerusalem, but he is having a feast uh, outside of Jerusalem, which suggests that this is what he's instituting. What he's celebrating is a kind of alternative Passover, a new Passover that's connected with the new Exodus, the new Exodus that he's already performed in a couple of different ways. Uh, but I think that the connection between the the five thousand men. Passover setting, and the fact that he's outside the city of Jerusalem during this Passover period. He's setting up an alternative to the Old Covenant system. It's not simply that he's doing things that are that surpass the Old Covenant or that show the weakness of the Old Covenant, but he's actually creating a kind of alternative. If you want to have abundant food, and if you want to celebrate the final Passover, you come to Jesus, the temple, and that's he's setting up that, uh, that new temple system that's gathered around himself at the center. My closing comment, just in verse 15, when Jesus saw they're going to take him by force and make him king, I think when the early church would read this and ponder this, they'd, they'd uh, come away with what's central about the Jesus' kingdom, eating and drinking with Jesus, uh, and that the solutions to problems are not found in force or political changes, but eating and drinking with Jesus at his table. This is the way Jesus exercises his kingship, not by leading a force against Jerusalem or Rome with weapons or siege engines, and uh, this would never really deal with the real problem. Jesus' method of ruling, uh, the, you know, the hallmark of his kingdom was service through death. And so the same temptation here is offered to Jesus. Really, Satan is kind of appearing again, like he did in Matthew 4. Uh, to offer Jesus a kingdom apart from self-sacrificial service and death, but he's not taking the bait. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.